podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Steve Bloomer's Washing, the Derby County fan podcast. I'm Chris Parsons as usual, it's the international break and with the Rams out of action we're bringing you our latest interview with a former Rams fan favourite. Dean Sturridge spent a decade at Derby County during which time he fired the Rams to the Premier League for the first time in 1996. He's only the third 20 goal a season striker we've had in more than 20 years after Chris Martin and Matteo Vidra and was one-third of a forward line which helped establish Derby in the top flight in the late 1990s. Tom, not everyone knows you know, that much about, about New Sturridge. He, he was before the time of, of some of our younger fans. How important was he to the club at the uh, end of the last century, would you say? Yeah, hugely important, of course. Um, he scored 20 goals in that season that got us promoted in 95-96, and then scored numerous goals with double figures in that first season to keep us up and consolidate us, as you said. Interestingly, my first memory of Dean Sturridge was when I was about eight years old, and it was Jimmy Greaves who was talking on the big match live, Derby having beaten Birmingham City uh, 4-1 away from home, and he just talked about Sturridge's pace, and he said that he hadn't had it the previous season, and that pace just destroyed defensive in the in the NC League Division One to send us up second in the league. So yeah, hugely important. Um, he was an excellent player for Derby, and I've got really fond memories from him uh, when I was growing up. That was the thing about him, coach, wasn't it? If you were to describe his playing style to those who haven't seen him play, how would you do that? Well, pace is the obviously the obvious one, lightning speed, but he also very direct. He was he went, he always headed straight towards the goal, no faffing about. And he had a touch of flair about him as well. He scored some great goals, which are typical centre-forward, quick centre-forward goals, getting in behind the fence, playing on the shoulder. But he also hit some absolute screamers from outside the box. We were going for a highlight reel earlier. You were saying that he, uh, he loved a dink. He loves he? a dink as well. He, and he, he often <laughs> would shoot early. He wasn't scared to shoot from outside the box when he's one-on-one. But he'd often also just dink over the keeper. A great dink over Seaman. I think one against Reading in the promotion season as well. Both footed as well. He, he could hit them yeah. comfortably well, both right and left. When I remember watching him play in what was a great period for the club. I just remember thinking that when it was him, Wanchop and Bayano, especially him, but when you've got a player like Sturridge in your team, you know you're going to you, you know you're going to create chances, mm. don't you? Because he was just so rapid off the last man. Quite short, wasn't he? But yeah, but, strong. but but really yeah. strong and stocky and muscular. And basically if you got a ball in behind, he was onto it. And when he was at his peak for those couple of years, between sort of 95 and like 98. He was a real handful, wasn't he, Tom? Yeah, definitely. Um, a player that reminded me a little bit about, sort of similar to him, was actually Michael Owen, which is kind of strange. It's the when Michael Owen burst onto the scene, he had that raw pace. And I don't think we really see a striker with that sort of raw pace anymore. It meant that defences had to play deeper uh, to ne- negate that pace. And then we had the playmakers in behind, Simpson in the Division 1 season, then the likes of Asanovic, of course, that Bayano one-chop in the Premier League years. They could have so much more space and create great chances and we, we scored goals because we had so much variety up front uh, in those players that you mentioned earlier. So we spent an afternoon with Dino talking one shop, his failed move to Arsenal, um, that goal against Arsenal obviously and loads more and here without further ado is what he said. Powell he headed that ball down there's nothing wrong with that and he gallops on the two in the middle still it's Daryl Powell he'll try and get Gabbiadini in to finish it here slip for Sturridge Derby have won the day now, surely! It was a lightning counter, led by Daryl Powell, continued when it mattered, 
with the crispest of passes by Marco Gaviadini and rounded off by the hot shot. Dean, it's a pleasure to see you again after all these years and you're still working at football, is that right? That's correct, yes, um, in another capacity now. We'd love to be on the field with you know, the quality of play and the wages that players earn, but now I try to help behind the scenes as a mentor stroke agent. So we've got a company called Sturridge Sports Management and been involved in it now for the last couple of years. So I'm the one generally who's on the shop floor. And But the best, the most enjoyable part of the job is mentoring the players and trying to guide them down the right path. We'll get on to all of that in, in due course, of course, but I can't believe it's been more than 20 years ago now that you had that breakthrough season at Derby County uh, in 1995-96. Do you still get asked by sort of many Derby fans about it from time to time? Do you get, get recognised out and about? Um, yes, <laughs> I want to be modest, obviously. It's a family name that's synonymous with football, so we've heard a few players in the family get asked questions about myself, and my brother Simon, Daniel's daddy, Michael, who played many, many years ago um, for Birmingham City amongst other clubs. And, and obviously Daniel, who has picked the baton up from myself and su- surpassed what I did in my career and shown to probably, I think, definitely be the, I can't say probably, I'll say definitely be the best storage. Um, unfortunately, he's had a few injuries lately. But oh, I think, they'll be I think if you're Derby fans, I might question that personally. But, uh, you know, it's, well, I it's very modest of you to say so. Well, the fact is I didn't represent my country, which, which has, That's true. he has. So that you put that as a barometer and say that is the best story so far. And hopefully um, the injury issues are behind him and he can have a great 2018 to 19 season. Now, just uh, in terms of yourself, you fondly remembered by Derby fans for that 20 goal season when Derby were promoted in 95-96, uh, in, in but you'd actually joined the club a few years before that, hadn't you, Derby County, in 91 as a trainee, um, and you had to wait a while before you gained your regular first-team chance, didn't you, initially? Yeah, um, I think it was a little bit, what would I say, off the cuff as such in terms of me signing for Derby County, because, as you can tell with the accent, a Birmingham lad had gone around Birmingham, Aston Villa, Coventry, all the Midlands clubs generally, and probably was what would I say probably wasn't as focused about say you know in terms of becoming a footballer probably felt it was not inevitable but felt maybe that I would become one because of my brothers being footballers and thinking probably not channeling my what would I say my professionalism in the right way I took Mm -hmm. it for granted and got distracted a little bit so it came to a scenario where I was just leaving school and because I wasn't focused enough I didn't know what club I was going to be going to when I was leaving school to become a trainee. A scout who had scouted my brother Simon to Birmingham City at this stage, when I was leaving school, he was a scout for Derby County. His name was Jim Thomas, and he said, look, go for a game. I've told Derby about you, and it was Jerry Summers and Richie Williams who we talked to. Becoming a trainee initially for Derby was a bit of a precarious situation because I may have not become a footballer or could have been on the dole because I didn't focus enough at school or focus enough in becoming a uh, trainee and stroke professional eventually. So you know all those Derby fans assumed that you just exploded onto the scene but it wasn't really right that at all was it? It sounds like you know you had to earn your right to play into uh, you know there's a lot of hard graft and a few hard decisions that you made yourself before you sort of frankly got your act together is that fair well, to say yeah definitely I think first and foremost the a big change was going from Birmingham to live in Derby I would need a 45 minute journey but as a 16 year old it can be a little bit um, what would I say 
you know, daunting in terms of leaving home and having new responsibilities and new situations, meeting teammates, having to integrate in with friends or teammates in the digs. Because I remember initially going into the digs, there's five or six of us had a landlady, and the hardest part for me initially was. I was used to Jamaican food, my mum cooking chicken rice and peas. Really? Whereas this landlady was cooking pork or <laughs> cooking certain things, corned beef and potato. And it became a, a, a running theme that there were a few black lads in this digs and we'd all just run to the toilet and throw our food down the toilet. You see floating peas in the toilet. <laughs> so that was um, something that became regular, regular in terms of knowing and realising, wow, you're going from a household and being brought by your mother by great food and nice surroundings or surroundings that you're used to and now I'm in a room or in digs with four or five other lads having to get on with them, having to try and adapt to the kind of food and the regimented style of waking up at a certain time and being professional to become a footballer. So it was all these changes and and most importantly to, to answer your question, probably not being perceived as one of the top players in the academy as it's called now then it was a YTS scheme so as a 16 17 year old I was having to I had the storage name because there'd been footballers in the family who had played professionally but still having to prove myself and say well why are you at Derby County are you as good as Simon or will you become better than him um, so Jerry Summers and Richie Williams believed in me but it was still very hard to get yourself in that pecking order with your peers and try and show that you deserve to be at that level so what were the, in those early days, you spent, uh, it was two or three years at Derby when there was only like a handful of appearances you had, then you went out on loan to Torquay mm. in 94-95. Uh, what were sort of the most valuable lessons that you learned during that early stage of your career? I think it was a wake-up call because, as I said, probably a little bit because of being part of a football family. You think, you know, my brother's done it. So I'll be able to do it, it's easy. And then you realise it's not easy. There's a lot of politics in football, a lot of hard work they have to do behind the scenes so everybody sees the match day. But the Monday to Friday, you've got to be very professional. And I probably wasn't as professional at that stage as my brother Simon who would train and then come home at maybe two o'clock in the afternoon and put his pyjamas on and sit on the settee and go to bed early. I was That wasn't your style. That wasn't my style. I like to walk the street with my mates, maybe meet a lady here or there and get a little bit distracted. So I wasn't as focused as my brother. So I think it was a wake up call being allowed to go out on loan to Torquay because when um, Roy McFarlane told me at the time, I remember him calling me in, my off- in, in his office, I was a little bit shocked think there's a little bit of a lump in my throat and I remember going back I was in a house living with a lady in Oakwood at the time and I remember going back to the house to her and saying oh choking as I say no I'm being allowed to go to Torquay on loan and it was around the Christmas time as well where you're normally around your family but I thought if Roy McFarland believes I need this maybe he's seen that I wasn't as focused and professional as I needed to be I probably looked at it as a rejection at the time but it was the best thing that ever happened for me because went to Torquay, played first team football, realised at a lower level you have to wash your own kit, do your boots yourself, so it was a total eye-opener for me and it um, improved my professionalism and and made me realise how much I loved the game and what level I wanted to play at. Now the season after Jim Smith took over um, in the summer before that promotion season. How big a factor was he in your in your in, your, in you breaking into the first team? Um, massive influence because because of going out on loan to Torquay and then coming back for the remainder of the season, playing 
under 23s football as it's called now as then it was called reserve team football I was thinking I've gone out and loan scored goals in a first team environment hopefully I can get a taste of first team football now but unfortunately it didn't pan out that way so came back played and reserve football and then in the close season I was out of contract what always stuck in my mind in that I was having to prove my po- a point to Jim Smith and Steve McLaren in pre-season training and maybe they would have thought privately well look at this boys goals record not scored any goals in championship football the level of Derby are at, at the time scored some goals in League 2 football is he going to be enough for us probably not so other players were ahead of me in the pecking order I think Mark Stallard Darren Rack at the time were playing in the striking positions as young lads who I was competing with as such and I think probably at that stage Jim Smith and Steve McLaren seen those players ahead of me but in the way I performed in pre-season I think they started to take a little bit of notice of me as it came closer to that first game of the season and that's when they started talking to me and calling me in and saying look we need to give you a new contract we need to give you a contract that will make you sign and stay at this football club so we don't want you to leave and that was so that's why Jim Smith was a big influence because he saw something in me, he believed in me enough in that. Remember his line, he said, don't cut your nose off to spite your face, sign the contract and you'll be on the bench at the weekend You know, in the first game of the season. I think it was a live game, I can't remember who the fixture was against. True to his word, after I'd signed the contract, I was on the bench in that first game of the season at the baseball ground and came on for the last 10-15 minutes and acquitted myself quite well. And then those 10-15 minutes, the next game became half an hour. I think it was against Luton, may have been the next game after that, and away at Luton, and I scored. Scored ahead in that game. Exactly. You? I think we lost the game. If my, mem- my memory's not the greatest, I have to be honest, because you're telling me about the years I made my debut, and I've got to be honest, I don't look back in the records and know everything. I spent a lot of time here like Wikipedia, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that actual season, you had a terrific goal-scoring record, and it was one of, you know, one of your best seasons in your career. Clearly... For fans watching you, it was clear that one of your best assets was your pace. Was there a point in your early career when you realised, you know, look, I am a bit faster than the average centre-back, you know, did you have that sort of moment? Honestly, I probably knew it from the age of 10, 11, 12. That early? Because we're from a football family and we're competitive, so apart from playing dominoes or playing certain board games playing Kirby on the street with the ball. We'd also go for races against one another. So when we was going to the chip shop, for example, probably not the most healthy thing back in the day then, but that's what we were doing on a regular basis. So Simon was obviously very fast. My brother Michael was very fast also, and they were known, and I'd seen videos of them performing on a pitch. So sometimes they'd say, well, we're, we're not going to start level because we're four years older than you or maybe eight, ten years older than you. I'll give you a little bit of a head start. And if I tried to cheat a little bit and give more of a head start for myself, they'll go, no, 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 you're coming back. So that made me aware of, they didn't want to give me too much of a head start. So I had a certain amount of pace and ability to run. So that promotion season, Derby finished second behind Sunderland, promoted to the Premier League. And it was your best season. What, what changed in that season to make you so prolific in that one year, do you think? Focus would be the biggest word that I'd say, as I alluded to at the start of this podcast in that, as a younger lad, I got waylaid, distracted, didn't really be as professional as I could and should have been, um, didn't realise it at the time, but as I progressed through my career, I realised that, and that's one of the things that I enjoy so much of being an agent and mentoring players that we're all going to make mistakes, we're human, and I think that season more than any other was a season where I was totally focused and obsessed with scoring goals, great team spirit in the changing rooms, 
I mean, we know about the politics behind football. I think that season there wasn't arguments as such on the training ground. I think it was well known the previous seasons because of the big money signings, the characters, all probably nice individuals, but when they came together, didn't click. it didn't click. Very good individual players, Tommy Johnson, Paul Kitson, yeah, Marco <laughs> Gabbiadini, etc., etc. You know, Craig Short, there, Gary Charles, Paul Williams. I can remember that team and that squad very well. It was an abundance of talent. When he was on the training ground, you know, it was difficult to get the ball off them when they wanted to play key ball and show their quality and when they were on it. So, what happened with the collection of players that Jim Smith bought with Steve McLaren? I don't know if they'd done their character references. I'm sure they did their due diligence of signing players like Gary Rowett, Dean Yates, etc., um, Sean Flynn, and then with the, um, what would I say, the Derby County DNA of myself and Lee Carsley. It was just a great mix in that everybody got on so well. Loads of banter in the changing rooms. Igor Stimak. I was going to ask, yeah, because we, we spoke to Daryl Powell last season and he uh, he said that Stimak made a huge difference. Was it was, huge, it was his charisma. Well? I think it was his arrogance and confidence. And I'm saying arrogance in the nicest way. He had that belief that it transmitted through the team. That influenced everybody on the pitch to be a little bit more um, calmer in possession not as erratic so he created a culture of belief and confidence and strength within the team framework a defining moment of that season of course was the 2-1 win over Crystal Palace at the baseball ground I know it's a few years ago now but when Paul Simpson put you through you took a touch and you were clean through on goal do you remember what was going through your mind? Knowing me and being honest, it would have been more just hit the target. Just don't miss. <laughs> I wouldn't say don't miss because I remember it. I actually, my son put it on YouTube or Google or something and we were looking at it um, a couple of months ago and I always had a signature kind of finish that I always felt comfortable a default mode that I'd always use a side foot whip at whatever angle of the box I was in that I'd always be aiming for the side netting or the corners of the net. So I don't think as a striker comment that you made would never go through my mind it wouldn't be don't miss you wouldn't have that negative connotation it, I always had a attitude of I'm going to score what and I think doing? even good times or bad times in a player's career there's times when I didn't score as many goals or scored loads of goals still whenever I got in the box or around the box my mentality was one of I want to score I want to be the one that the fans are chanting my name and screaming my name so as a striker you have to have a very strong mentality so to have as they say, the devil and angel. You can't have that devil of, oh, I'm going to miss or what's going to happen. It's got to be a mentality of, I'm the one who's going to be the match winner. I'm the one who wants to be on the back of the newspapers. I'm the one that I want the cameras on or the microphone put in front of me. And that's the mentality you have to have as a striker. Presumably that's that's your favourite goal from that season, I guess, from the, the 20 that you scored in the league that year. Yeah, it has to be because it was the most important of the 20. Um, I remember that week leading up to it, I think we went to Champions and we were there on a night in terms of drinking at the bar and I'd had an average time for the previous three or four games had just gone a little bit flat, wasn't as sharp, wasn't as elusive and wasn't as clinical and Robin van der Laan was talking to me at the bar and saying look just one moment you're the man you're going to be playing because I was even doubting whether I was going to be starting that game because I'd gone through a little bit of a barren patch and he was like I've talked to the gaffer he's behind we'll be leaving you and Robin van der Laan was a great captain in that he had time for people hence why he was the captain and that week and that night 
built me with confidence by the way he talked to me and the way he made me feel and the way I trained over the course of that week leading into the game. I was very, very confident as I walked to the stadium. I remember the cameras are there outside the baseball ground and as I walked in and I remember looking back at the videos at the end of that season and you could see my eyes and my approach was a certain look of, I know I'm going to be the man today, I know I'm going to provide a goal. I was yeah. really up for it and thankfully, you know, you do have that feeling many times when you go into a stadium, but I think on that day, I was convinced that I'd contribute and I was convinced that we'd win that game to take us into the Premier League and thankfully it panned out that way. What was the party like after the game? <laughs> well, the party started in the changing rooms and in the shower area, in the bath area. I can remember Robin, no, I was going to say Robin van der Leyen, it was Willems was there with a cigar in the bath. Yeah. Passed a cigar to me. The first time I've ever even had a cigar in my hand. I had a little puff of it and started choking. <laughs> but thought, better do it because Ronnie's doing it in the, in the bath with his feet. If you can't do it then. If you can't do it then, can you, can you do it? So had a bit of banter with that and with champagne and etc. So it started within minutes of going back into the changing room. And obviously we had a night where I think we went, which I can't remember the name, little over the little restaurant which you may be able to tell me which Derby used to use quite regularly. Just before you get on the A38, we went to a little um, restaurant there, an Italian one, and we ate, drank, and played music. And Drank the place dry. Exactly. <laughs> drank the place dry and had a very good night. Excellent. The season after, you hit the ground running, running as well then, didn't you? Because you scored Derby's first ever Premier League goal on the opening day against Leeds. Um, how do you think Derby managed to adapt to the Premier League so quickly would you say? I think it's about belief and momentum and confidence so you're used to winning games from the championship and you go in with an attitude of thinking you can beat anybody so we'd be in this in, on the coach on the way to games and saying I'd say Tony Adams if we're playing against Arsenal who's he he won't be able to handle somebody with my pace Eagle would have his confidence as well and talk about Ian Wright I'm going to shut him out and Darrell would say I'm going to smash Patrick Vieira and that was the mentality that we went into every game so I think that Leeds game was an eye-opener initially because I think we started badly and went 2-0 down or yeah. something like that and then you're thinking wow this is the Premier League I think Lee Bowyer may have scored one or two goals and you're thinking okay within minutes you tell you can understand the difference in quality the way the players receive the ball the way they see the pitches on the pitch now it's with Rowett Rowett up the inside right position touched on into the path of Sturridge first time shot goal Beautiful shot from Sturridge, right past Martin and Derby County pull themselves back into the game with their first goal of the season belonging to Dean Sturridge and he hit it from 22 yards up into the air, massive backspin under the post in the top corner and Nigel Martin, two and a half million from Crystal Palace in the summer, wasn't good enough. It's like playing, what would I say, drafts in the Championship and it's a chess match in the Premier League. So it's more about thinking, it's a way your brain works. So you may have the athleticism, but if your brain's not working quickly enough, then you can't use your pace or your movement. So it's a more of a thinking man's game, and that was the eye-opener of that first game, but it was obviously nice for myself to score a couple of goals. You mentioned a few Arsenal players there. We can't talk about that season without mentioning that goal we scored at Highbury in that season. Probably <laughs> it's the my... one that's mentioned to me more than any other goal of ever I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, I was thinking about this, I think Derby fans voted 
one chop's goal at Old Trafford is the best. Well, I'm not having time. that. I, well, exactly, yeah. I'm but joking, I mean, honestly, I'm for me, it is. I'm, I'm not just saying this. It is probably one of my favourite derby goals of all time. I mean, but there's a few fans who are maybe a bit younger who may not have seen it. Describe that goal again. I think it was Sean Flynn who received the ball on the halfway line, and was a common theme in the way I like to play. Probably because of my youth playing in a wide position, so I'd play wide left, wide right. Using your football intelligence, you know, generally, you're going to have more space in wider areas. So if you can get in possession of the ball in those wide areas and have the ability with skill or with pace to cut inside, you're always going to get into that inside left channel and have the opportunity to shoot with your right foot then. So it's a decision then of going with power or if you're going to go with a whip finish towards the far corner, which Thierry Henry was obviously famous for. I went on this occasion for power, so I can remember Sean Flynn playing a 50-60 yard diagonal ball. I received it on my chest and generally my chest control is not very good. It's like one of my least favourite parts of controlling a ball. I just didn't see it as adept of controlling the ball in that way as I did with other areas of my body. But on this occasion, I controlled it perfectly and it went into my path exactly the way I wanted it to. And then I think I touched it past the defender, which may have been Lee Dixon who went to ground. And then Tony Adams came out to me and then slid it past him and then struck it. And people say he, he was a bit of a thunderbolt strike. And he, I think goals look more aesthetically pleasing when they hit the if crossbar. Go in, yeah. go in. Just so say, that's, yeah. that was the nicest part of it in that it hit the crossbar, then went down and then went into the roof of the net. So it was probably one of the highest emotional feelings I'd ever had on a football pitch because of the build-up as well, because of... Ian Wright at that stage being my hero, he'd been built up in the papers about me playing against my hero, Ian Wright on the halfway line at the start of the match, shouted across to me, Dino, good luck for the game, make sure you score as well, so all those kind of things, it was like the icing on the cake to score in that fixture. It was around that time as well, it was all changed for Derby with, with plenty of new players when they got into the Premier League. When Jim Smith introduced a certain unknown Costa Rican to you in, in training, he said, oh, chaps, this is, this is Paolo. What was your first impression of him? If you're a good footballer, it doesn't really matter how you conduct yourself off the pitch. If you can play, then you get accepted into the group. When we trained with him, we thought he had magical moments and then moments where you're thinking, has this player played the game before? So he was very erratic, but you knew something was there. On the personal side, on the human side, I can remember in the first couple of weeks of him being part of the squad, when he came into the changing rooms, as it was done then, the team sheet would just be put up on a board and his name wouldn't be on it and he'd storm out of the changing room and we thought, whoa, this lad's got some confidence. So I knew within myself, I've got to be looking over my shoulder because this is a player coming into the building who feels he should be playing instead of me or playing with me. He was good on the training ground, you could see certain attributes, but also mentally and in terms of his opinion of himself, he had a huge belief. It wasn't just him, of course, there was the likes of... Francesco Baiano, you know, Mark Poom, Aranio, all those other more sort of cosmopolitan players that Derby had. How did it work in, in that team when, when he, you know, playing, for example, with Wanchuk on Baiano as a three up front in like sort of yeah. 98 around that time? Was it like a, like a translator or did you converse much in training or to just... Did it just sort of it's click? Just, I know? think it's called what is it? Um, a football language. Everybody just understands it, and it's a universal language, and that's how it panned out. So it wasn't something that we talked to, to one another about on the training ground. Or I said, "You do this," or they said to me, "You do this," and I'll do that. It just happened naturally, and I feel 
when we all three of us were at our best we really complemented one another because Paolo provided that presence that height that strength and that unpredictability Bayano with his football intelligence and his touch and then myself with my pace and my directness it was a really good blend at the start it was electric and then as football is it becomes a game of egos then and then the dynamics of that tr- that tr- us as a trio didn't flow and it didn't probably didn't fulfill its potential and go to the heights that it should have done with what we brought to one another's game and I'd say I'd add to that probably because of my injuries as well didn't help because it didn't provide a consistency for the team so then other players would come in and then they would play well the likes of Dion Burton and then the dynamics of that three may have complemented one another more than me and I'll be the one on the outside looking in and having to fight my way back so I feel Bayano and Wanchuk were great signings I'd say, can't use the word favourites, but the most influential in terms of what they brought on the playing field and them as people, for me, Stimac, Asanovic and and, um, Iranio were electric in my mind in what they brought as a human element and also what they brought in terms of their technical qualities. You mentioned... Uh, a few egos there if you don't mind me asking were, were there any particular difficult characters in, the, in that team in the changing room then or I think what would I say in terms of strikers are always going to have an ego because they want to be the man I said it about myself so I'm not taking myself out of that I'm saying we all had huge egos and I found that out more so from going from club to club so what happened at Derby County with myself Wanchop and Bayano wasn't anything dissimilar that I may have found out at other clubs. It's just the life of a striker. The life of a striker, whether you're Harry Kane, Jermaine Defoe, or my nephew Daniel, you want to be the man at that club where the team is playing for your your attributes and bringing out the best of yourself, and you're the one, the go-to man who scores the goals. What happened in that team of myself, Wanchop, and Bayano? All three of us, I believe, wanted to be the man, and you can't have that in the dynamics of a team. So initially, it worked well, but then it tapered off and probably didn't fulfil the potential that it had initially. That's it for part one with Dean Sturridge. More in a second. Steve Bloomers Washing is partnered for this season with Derby Brewing Company, a family-run microbrewery and pub operator in Derby, with three venues across the city. Went through to Van der Laan, good return ball in here, good finish, great goal! What a fabulous goal from Dean Sturridge! Hi, I'm Curtis Davis, and you're listening to Steve Bloomer's Washing. So around that time you were at the club, there was also a change of stadium, wasn't there? A lot of Derby fans wouldn't be that familiar with a baseball ground if they are a bit younger. It had a certain unique charm, it's fair to say. How would you describe it as a, as a place to play? Um, enjoyable. Um, very taxing on the legs. I know it wasn't as muddy as the 60s and 70s, but it still was draining. It would still get brown and patchy and the lack of grass in the middle part of the season. Yeah, it did really take it out of the legs. Um, it's probably exciting as well in terms of watching it as an, a, a young apprentice and remembering the nights like when they played against Aston Villa. Cup nights when Paul Williams scored an acrobatic volley. Um, So from the outside looking in as such as an apprentice, it was always an intimidating atmosphere I felt for the opposition and always electric and exciting to be a derby player. remember Ted McMinn, the tin man in the wide areas, twisting defenders left and right and it was good to watch the players, the likes of Dean Saunders, Mark Wright, Pete Shilton in between the sticks. So it was a good education for me to know what's required to be a top player. 
I remember watching some of your goals back when you scored against Sheffield Wednesday in that season at a baseball ground on literally one of the worst pitches I've ever seen. Hit the post and come back off Kevin Pressman's head. Sounds about right. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't the best playing surface at times. No, it was very, very poor. And as I said, it was very, you know, draining. We knew the opposition wouldn't really enjoy coming to the baseball ground. So, and in the intimidation factor and. For us, the feel-good factor in terms of knowing we maybe have one up mentally on the opposition it always gave us confidence. Who did you get on best with in that team during your stay with the club? Well, numerous. Lee Carsley has to be number one because we came through the ranks together. So we're close, we still speak to one another now. Um, he's had numerous jobs on the managerial side and we've always touched base and knocked heads concerning certain things and he's giving me heads up on certain players and we've reminisced and had funny stories that we've told one another about our digs days and all the ups and downs that we went through to become decent players at Derby because of the fellow Derby youth player wasn't he and the fellow Brummie so we went through the same scenarios as myself in terms of I remember the night when we went back to Birmingham City and played at St Andrews and I think we won 4-1 Lee Carsley was probably one of the best players on the pitch. I scored a goal. I remember us walking down the tunnel and we noticed the scouts who had decided not to sign us for Birmingham City. And we said, oh, you could have had us. <laughs> and had a little laugh. So he was the closest I was with throughout the years at Derby, but also had a good relationship with Darrell Powell, Dion Burton, Igor Stimach. There was numerous. I was a kind of character. Sometimes I could be quite, um, I wouldn't say cold, I would say keep myself to myself, do my training, have a bit of bent on the training pitch and then go home to my family life. So I wasn't one of those lads who would be going regularly on to the pubs and drinking after training. And I think it became less and less with the international influence that came to that club. So the likes of Igor, Jakob Larsson and Stefan Schnorr and numerous others. So the foreign element, you know, we came into the club they introduced a more professional outlook as well that it wasn't about socialising as much away from the training ground it was more about being professional when you came to training eating the right food as well behind the scenes you know being very healthy and they brought a certain technique to the training as well like Aranio would get us doing rondos as a called now and we'd do that before every training session which was unheard of in my time at being a Derby County player coming through the ranks. That's quite a big thing in English football at the time, wasn't it? That when sort of Arsene Wenger came to Arsenal, you know, like English football was going through a lot of change during that period. Yeah. At the time, wasn't it? And I remember when we spoke to Darrell Powell last season, he said that one of the reasons Derby was so successful at that time was they was because they're quite a progressive club, you know, they yeah. were doing well, pros and that sort of thing. Is that, is that how you remember it? Yeah, I think Jim Smith and Steve McLaren had a major influence on that. So when Steve McLaren was analysing my game and analysing the my teammates' games and the opposition in terms of pro zone, and from the Monday to Friday, we analysed the opposition and closing off their positive parts of their team and the structure or the individual ability of team and sending them into certain areas where we do certain pressing to put them into an area where they felt uncomfortable and then that gave us confidence in knowing we'd prepared properly and then Steve would give us our biggest attributes and how we could exploit their weaknesses so the preparation was first class and it was something that gave us the the opportunity to get promoted initially from the championship I believe because I remember even after three, four, five games we were in the bottom six 
And I remember Steve McLaren walking down the steps at the training ground, walking on the pitch, and we were feeling a bit sorry for ourselves. It always stuck in my mind. And he says, we will get promoted with that good. We've got so much belief in you as a group. And at that time, I think he had, and the coaching staff had more belief in us than we had in ourselves at that stage. So they created that serenity and calmness and belief and confidence, and it transmitted through the team. And obviously, we got promoted. And as I said, reiterating it in terms of answering your question in terms of being ahead of the game, ahead of the curve in terms of our preparation. We did do that in the Premier League and that gave us the opportunity to consolidate in the top league in Europe. 53 goals by my by my count for yourself during, uh, during your stint with Derby. Not enough. <laughs> Which That's one? what Harry Kane does in the season now. Well, yeah, but, you know, it's all relative, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, which ones make the Dean Sturridge top three? Number one because of the spotlight and the occasion and what and how it was built up in that week would have to be the Highbury goal because of how Ian Wright playing against my mentor, hero and etc. and being in the Premier League and how much exposure it was given. The most important and the most fulfilling in terms of being in a pressure situation, the goal against Crystal Palace, those either one could be number one for different reasons but that Crystal Palace goal was obviously very important in terms of knowing how much pressure we were under as a team because really the record books say Sunderland won the league but I feel and Jim Smith always said at the time he's disappointed we should have won the league although we finished second we got promoted and it was a great accolade and great achievement I feel with the ability we had in that squad and the momentum and the confidence we had we really should have won the league and in the end it got to the penultimate game in that we had to achieve that Premier League status and that promotion and it shouldn't have got to that stage really with the football we were playing over the course of 20 or something games I think we went unbeaten so I felt that we were probably the best team in the league although officially it doesn't say that in the record books say Sunderland so you've got to give them credit but um, and then number three good, probably Arsenal again the one at home at Pride Park I, can't remember, I can just remember Matt Carbon maybe the ball was going to go out for a goal kick but it hit the corner flag I think and stayed in and then he chipped it up the line and somebody flicked it up on, on the halfway line with you. I can't remember who it was. And then I managed to show um, the pace that I was renowned for, held off Emmanuel Petit. I think he tried to barge me out of the way, but my low centre of gravity and I was known as quite a stocky, strong striker, managed to hold him off and then as David Seaman came out, um, and nonchalantly chipped it over him and that probably illustrated how much confidence I was playing with at that stage. Speaking of Arsenal again, I'm sure I might be wrong on this, but I, I'm, I seem to remember reading at the time that you were linked with a move to Arsenal. Was there anything in that? Yeah, um, there was a certain amount of truth to it. Um, so I was told, as this is my role now today as an agent, and my agent at the time made me aware that Arsenal were one of numerous clubs who were interested in buying me at the time, probably 97, 98, and it contributed to me making the wrong decision of going on the transfer list and it was the one and only time I ever done that at any club I'd ever been at and that was my naivety of listening to what was being said around me and think and I was told if you go on the transfer list you'll get a move to one of the clubs that were interested at the time although Arsenal were one of the clubs it wasn't that club that I felt I was confident of going to and that Derby would eventually accept a certain figure for me. I think ultimately, you know, it's one of those for the books players say, oh, I'm not going to talk about this, but I believe 
um, God bless him, he's passed away now. That Lionel Pickering had so much belief in me over the years of me playing reserve team football, and I'd heard that he'd advocated for me getting into the first team. And he was always talking behind the scenes, saying, "There's this young lad who I believe is good enough to play in Derby's first team." So we always had that belief, and because I eventually achieved that, he was digging his heels in and thinking, "I'm not going to allow." myself to be leaving Derby County just for a normal price so he put at that stage I think I'd be probably a little bit of an extortionate figure of seven million on my head whereas there were numerous clubs who were more thinking around the four to six million figure and that was ultimately why I didn't leave Derby because no club was prepared to pay the seven million figure that Lionel Pickering was asking for. It seems odd with that in mind that when you did eventually leave the club in 2001 it was for around sort of three 400,000 to Leicester yeah um, tell us how that move came about it must have been a bit of a wrench to leave after like, like 10 years at the club well it educated me again about agents <laughs> because it was a throwaway comment I was playing against Leicester in the reserves on a Tuesday night I think it was scored a couple of goals and I remember Gary Parker was the manager of Leicester for the under 23s it's called now reserves and I said to him in a, a passing comment oh I'll come and play for you if you fancy me and I've seen his eyes light up. He obviously passed that on to Peter Taylor at the time. So I was my own agent, if I'm being honest. Were you a bit sort of disillusioned with, with things at Derby? I at think the time, then? I'd, the time had run its course. I you think been there 10 years. 10 years. years, it was a good innings, and I'd become stale. I'd, you need that carrot, that scenario in football club that are trying to get the best out of you, and they can see your positive aspects of your game. At that stage, I think it became where my negatives, my attributes were not highlighted and I could sense that and feel that and with your treatment you're not playing regular first team football so you've outstayed your welcome as such and I never liked outstaying my welcome anywhere so I think it became where I became stale, became disillusioned, wasn't enjoying the game and I needed a change and it just so about happened that it was in the last four months of my contract in that January in the last four or five months why the figure was so low because Four or five months later, I'd have been going on a Bosman on a free transfer. So, as I said, I was my own agent in terms of I instigated that move. Other people will probably say, oh, I had something to do with it and I'd done this and that. But I know within myself that I was the one who instigated it by, number one, obviously scoring goals to show Gary Parker that I was still hungry and could still score goals and still wanted to play first-team football. And then saying, although there were arch-rivals as such, um, I was prepared to want to play for Leicester just to kickstart my career again and start enjoying it. Ten years? You could have had a testimonial, couldn't you? <laughs> I could have, and it was something that I, Lee Carsley and I mentioned behind the scenes, saying any chance of a testimonial. But it never ever happened, unfortunately. Um, it would have been something that I would have enjoyed. And probably with how my career went on in the latter years, it wasn't as enjoyable and the fans probably didn't gravitate towards me and love me as much as the previous years because they could see I wasn't enjoying my football as much, I wasn't contributing as much. So a testimonial probably wouldn't have been fitting because I hadn't fulfilled my career at Derby as much as I'd like to have done. So fast forward a few a few years and you know your work right now, as you say, as a mentor and an agent. Um, how do you find that day-to-day? Because I think for me and a lot of fans, the work of an agent is one of those jobs that not many of us know how they how they work. Tell us about the ins and outs of it. Do you enjoy it? Well, definitely. Or oh, I wouldn't be doing it. So it's something in anything I've ever done. Initially when I retired, I went into media. Thoroughly enjoyed that as well. And then 
the next thing I wanted to do because of the family and our experiences in football between us as brothers over a hundred years of experience of football so we know the ins and outs of what it takes to be a top professional obviously got a nephew who's played for his country as well so we feel we got enough to help footballers along the way in terms of the mentoring most first and foremost in helping them and guiding them in their career and obviously as an agent you have the politics and the phone calls and the battles and that's not the most enjoyable part of the job but it's part of the job description so you have to go through that I'd have to say the most enjoyable part for me is mentoring the players helping them on their game talking to them and analysing them and then seeing them act on my words in their next performance and realising yeah they're receptive to my opinions on the game and they're a sponge and they're soaking it up and then they're going out there and putting it into practice that is the most amazing feeling ever when you advise young players do you give them sort of examples from your own career you know to, to try and help shape their learning and that sort of thing are they, are they aware of the career that you had um some are some are like dean who <laughs> so they have to do a little youtube or google clip and then be aware of who i have or they more often than not it's the parents who are aware of me and know my career and then they may pass that on to their sons and say boy the way you're asking dad <laughs> or ask your dad yeah it's one of them so that is a scenario would i say i tell them about my imperfections and my faults and the roads i went down that i shouldn't have done i will guide them and help them but ultimately as a young adult i like players to make their own mistakes and not try and say don't do this don't do that and then i'm there as a shoulder to cry on or somebody to bounce my opinions off them and tell them where they can improve and make them aware of certain things but from year to year in football it changes so you can't talk about things that you've gone through and say well this is what's going to happen to you you have to evolve with what's going on around you and ultimately more now than ever with social media that's more intense and the spotlight is on the players and under more pressure and intensity than I ever was I have to ask you just before we uh, we wrap things up about the current Derby side. I don't know how much of you know how much of Derby you've seen recently. Frank Lampard's now the manager, of course. Um, what do you think stopped them from getting promoted in recent seasons? Confidence. I said it about what the team I was part of had, and that was the biggest attribute more than anything else. I know Derby are rightly or wrongly synonymous with hitting a brick wall around. February, March, April and not being able to get over the finishing line when it comes to May so is that a mental block it's different players so and different teams but it's happening year after year really in the championship so I'd say that belief and that confidence in knowing and having that strength of character to know you're good enough to achieve that promotion so I'd put it down to that being the biggest attribute Where do you think Derby will finish at the end of the 18-19 season? Oh, what a question that is well it's Frank Lampard's first managerial role and good luck to him obviously he had a short while with Daniel at Chelsea and Daniel talks very highly of him and whenever you see obviously he had a great career first and foremost so he has that respect in the change room but how he conducts himself in the media as well is very very impressive so I think he'll have the people skills for it and ultimately it's about having the support network around him as well, some experienced people to guide him and help him, which I'm sure he's aware of. He doesn't need me telling him what to do. I'm hoping he can be successful in getting to that top six position and then have that confidence in himself and the team that they can get over the finishing line and achieve that ultimate aim of getting back into the Premier League. Dean, we'll leave it there for now. 
Pleasure. It's been an absolute honour. I've loved catching up with you, and uh, thanks once again for talking to us. Yeah, it's been my pleasure.